It's October. The leaves are beginning to change color. The air is crisp and cool. Pumpkin spice rules our local coffee shops. And everywhere, students have returned to the classroom, already missing summer break and, hopefully, preparing for midterms. Only this year, the hallways of public schools have become a newfound political battleground. Across the nation and all the way up to the halls of Congress, political leaders are investing more and more energy in determining school curriculum, and books have become a new target. During the 2021-2022 school year, more than 1,600 books were banned from school libraries, affecting 138 school districts in 32 states, according to a report from PEN America. For many, such bans are dangerous, but for others, it's a way to protect students. I'm Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill, and on this episode of The Switch Up, we're chatting with authors whose books have been banned. What does it mean to be on that list? And how could censorship impact not only students, but our democracy? was spiteful, full of a baby's venom. The women in the house knew it, and so did the children. For years, each put up with the spite in his own way. But by 1873, Setha and her daughter Denver were its only victims. The grandmother, Baby Soggs, was dead, and the sons Howard and Bugler had run away by the time they were 13 years old, as soon as merely looking in a mirror shattered it. That was the signal for Bugler. As soon as two tiny handprints appeared in the cake, that was it for Howard. Neither boy waited to see more. Another kettle full of chickpeas smoking in a heap on the floor. Soda crackers crumbled and strewn in a line next to the door sill. Nor did they wait for one of the relief periods. The weeks, months even, when nothing was disturbed. No, each one fled at once. The moment the house committed what was for him the one insult not to be born or witnessed a second time. Within two months, in the dead of winter, leaving their grandmother, baby Suggs, Setha, their mother, and their little sister, Denver, all by themselves in the gray and white house on Bluestone Road. That's the opening paragraph of Pulitzer Prize winner Toni Morrison's 1987 novel, Beloved. Set in the period following the Civil War, Beloved tells the story of a family of formerly enslaved people whose Cincinnati home is haunted by a malevolent spirit. But the book is so much more than just a ghost story or the story of a family. It's the story of the scars of America's original sin and how such horrors cannot simply be cast away but continue to exist and leave millions in pain. It's also one of the 50 most banned books in the country. Parents and scholars have objected to the book's depictions of pedophilia, incest, and rape. But something else stands out about Beloved, the fact that it didn't hide or sugarcoat what slavery was, and the impact it's had on generations, even hundreds of years after slavery ended. Beloved is explicit in the horrors, and for some, that makes it inappropriate for schools. During the 2021-2022 school year, PEN America found that 21% of banned books directly address issues of race and racism. 22% contain sexual content of varying kinds. 41% of banned books explicitly address LGBTQ themes or have protagonists or prominent secondary characters who are LGBTQ 
40% contain protagonists or prominent secondary characters of color. The issue of banned books goes back several years, when former President Donald Trump began a crusade against what he called anti-American race and sex stereotyping and scapegoating with one of his 2020 executive orders. That order argued that many people are pushing a different vision of America that is grounded in hierarchies based on collective social and political identities, rather than in the inherent and equal dignity of every person as an individual. This ideology is rooted in the pernicious and false belief that America is an irredeemably racist and sexist country, that some people, simply on account of their race or sex, are oppressors, and that racial and sexual identities are more important than our common status as human beings in America. Americans. Though the order has been overturned by now President Joe Biden, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw says it's no surprise that there has been an uptick in banned books since this order. Well, I anticipated that the effort that President Trump at the time um, was mounting by issuing an executive order against what he called uh, race and gender stereotyping would, if it was not arrested right then and there, turn into something that was much larger um, than it was. I think um, some folks weren't necessarily uh, aware that he had issued this executive order. And just to take folks back, this was right Right after, I think it was the last debate with then uh, Democratic nominee Biden, and Trump was asked to repudiate the Proud Boys, and instead of repudiating them, he said, stand by. And I thought, mm, stand by for what? <laughs> what is he going to do? Um, so when he came out in probably about a month later with an executive order banning ideas that have basically traveled under the banner of equal opportunity, ideas having to do with structural racism and intersectionality and implicit bias, he rolled all that together with this notion that these ideas are reverse discrimination. I realized we were in trouble because this was a far right wing nationalist, white nationalist kind of idea that diversity means, you know, hunt down the last white person. Uh, equal opportunity or inclusion means anti-white. These were ideas that circulated among the proud boy, neo-nationalist kind of set. And now they were coming into the center of American government, that was a milestone. So my concern was, all right, we have to treat this as the threat it really is. It's a threat to equal opportunity practice. It's a threat to ideas that animate the notion that we still have work to do in this society. And if we don't meet it with clarity and commitment, it's not going to go away. And honestly, I think a lot of people saw it simply as a campaign tactic. It was a campaign tactic. That's true. But that didn't mean it wasn't going to be dangerous and it wasn't going to last. And so, of course, uh, President Biden rescinded the order, but it was too late by that time. What didn't happen at the federal level then happen in red states across the country. And it was only a matter of time between the moment that a certain set of ideas has been deemed to be illegitimate, anti-American, anti-everything, 
and books that were thought to embrace those ideas would be banned. The two things went hand in hand. And I think folks just didn't anticipate that it would grow that quickly, that broadly, um, and would have quite the devastating effect on the freedom to learn that it has. Crenshaw is no stranger to censorship. Known for developing ideas, including intersectionality and critical race theory, Crenshaw is the most cited woman legal scholar in the history of law, according to Columbia Law School. And she was named one of the 10 most important thinkers in the world by Prospect Magazine in 2019. But her work has been repeatedly challenged. And as the classroom becomes a new place for political leaders to work their magic, her work has also been banned. Just this year, Crenshaw's work was meant to be included in the new Advanced Placement African American Studies program. But after being singled out by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as problematic, the college board removed Crenshaw's work from the curriculum. I'm not going to say that it isn't profoundly disturbing to see your work being banned, not just by MAGA conservatives and right-wingers, but by institutions and friends who are willing to negotiate away the principle of Black studies uh, as being, for example, a study not just of Black facts, but of the sociology and the history that make those facts relevant. Or to see those who are willing to say intersectionality has been made controversial so because it's been made controversial, we shouldn't teach it. It gives the loudest, the most crass, the most dishonest faction of our population veto power. They couldn't do it completely without the concession of too many people um, who should know better and who have really surprised me. This is rehearsing a pattern and practice that we saw play out at the end of uh, Reconstruction, for example. One of the oldest tactics to support an inequitable social order is to suppress and silence those who are in the position to call out that uh, social order and to anchor ideas that are useful to see it more clearly in order to transform it. So, you know, one of the oldest dimensions of the interruption of the free flow of ideas in the United States has been and was the effort to um, wipe out abolitionist advocacy. The Southern states actually used law, federal law, as well as state law to ban tracts that advocated for the end of enslavement. Um, they used uh, violence to kill people who were willing to say that slavery should not be a feature of a republic that was built on freedom and liberty. These ideas were, were viewed as incompatible with the status quo, and therefore that incompatibility uh, was enough to suppress it. And let's not also forget that uh, people of African descent were precluded in many courts of law from testifying. Well, what were they testifying to? They were telling the story uh, of what it meant to live lives as racialized people um, that were framed as people who had no rights that white that white men were bound to respect. So these ideas that there's certain groups of people, certain voices, certain uh, stories that 
cannot be told and that they are legitimate targets of censure is as old as the Republic. What should be concerning to people is how is it that things that we thought were in the rearview mirror are now ahead of us? How are we coming back into the same territory out of which we thought we had come? And why isn't there a greater sense of alarm about the fact that more books are being banned now than in recent history? Why aren't we more alarmed that their efforts to take away um, the capacity of future generations to learn from whence we came? That, I think, is the harder political question. We get where the MAGA sensibility is coming from, right? To basically say we want the country to be great again. You have to erase those who are saying there were a lot of things in the past that were not great. But the bigger question is what about everyone else who's not part of that cabal? Why has it been so easy to do this? Where are the clarion calls? Where is the effort to gather together all of our resources to say censorship is not only un-American, it is not conducive to protecting the democracy that we claim we want to have. But many in favor of limiting which books are present in schools and libraries say they are protecting children. Advocates argue parents should have the right to decide what their children are exposed to, and that children should not be exposed to topics like sex, violence, and drug use in schools. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, garnered supporters during his campaign by arguing book bans are really about parental control. In one campaign ad, Youngkin had a mother who wanted Morrison's beloved to be removed from her son's advanced placement high school curriculum. Take a listen. As a parent, it's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. I met with lawmakers. They couldn't believe what I was showing them. Their faces turned bright red with embarrassment. They passed bills requiring schools to notify parents when explicit content was assigned. It was bipartisan. It gave parents a say, the option to choose an alternative for my children. I was so grateful. Last year in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott required that the state's education agency investigate any criminal activity in our public schools involving the availability of pornography, while the governor of South Carolina asked the state's superintendent of education and its law enforcement division to investigate the presence of obscene and pornographic materials in its public schools. These actions, taking place in mostly Republican states, have led to not only books being banned, but criminal complaints being filed against librarians and teachers. George M. Johnson published their memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, in 2020. But in 2021, a school board member in Florida filed a complaint with the sheriff's department against the book. Johnson's memoir explores growing up Black and queer, the struggles they faced, but the joy they also found. Yeah, it's kind of interesting uh, because All Boys Are Blue was written so many years ago. It feels like uh, when I first even got the book deal, it was 2018. And so to be in 2023 and the book 
still be such a topic of conversation when it came out in 2020 is very interesting. Um, but I felt it was a necessary story, uh, especially for the times. Even back then, we were dealing with a lot of queer violence, and we were especially around queer youth, youth homelessness. Uh, and there were just many stories coming out about the abuses that queer youth were facing. And I felt what could happen if I put my story in a world where I grew up with a family that was very affirming of my queerness, even if I didn't understand what my queerness was, um, a story that talked about Black family, love, community, uh, and what the real journey of a young Black queer child just trying to figure out who they are in this world uh, looks like. Uh, and that really was the birth child for me writing All Boys Aren't Blue. And I don't know, maybe I was kind of seeing where things were going in the country to know that this story was extremely necessary at this moment, uh, because I think where we look at three years later, where the book is being super banned and all of those things, uh, we kind of could see the anti-LGBTQ discrimination was starting to rile up. Uh, and now we're at like this fever pitch moment where the book has become one of the most critical pieces uh, necessary for LGBTQ people. I have been writing my story in bits and pieces for many years. And, you know, it's often stereotyped that like black community is more homophobic than any other community. That's just something I don't ascribe to. Um, not only was it, there were parts of it that were my experience, but all communities have homophobia, all communities have transphobia. Uh, and when we look at who is leading the anti-LGBTQ movement, it is not Black folks. So I wanted to put a narrative out there that was a counter narrative uh, that showcased both sides of it, right? Because it wasn't that I didn't experience homophobia within the Black community, uh, but I wanted to give it nuance and I wanted to give it its totality. I didn't just want it to be so, I don't know, so thin almost. So just like straightforward, like, well, this is what it is and this is how it's always going to be. And it's like, well, that wasn't how it was for me and that's not how it is for a lot of others, but I also believe in possibility models. And so it was important to put my story out there as a possibility model for so many who needed to see it, uh, so many who needed changed minds, changed hearts, uh, and just those Black queer youth who were going through the same identity struggles that I was going through 20 years ago and hell, even 30 years ago. So I forget my age. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it just was so necessary to try and put this counter narrative out there uh, because, you know, we're already fighting against white supremacy. We don't need to be fighting each other within our own community. And so we got to do a much better job of understanding that our differences should make us closer, not make us divided. And I wanted people to understand that just because I'm queer doesn't mean I don't exist in heterosexual community, but just because you're heterosexual doesn't mean that you don't play a role in queer people's lives either. Um, and that we all kind of in a Venn diagram type of way play a role in all of our lives. And if the rights of queer people are taken away, eventually the rights of black people are taken away because there are black queer people. So it affects us all. And I just wanted people to see how the intersections of that actually worked versus how they worked in theory. Johnson says All Boys Aren't Blue isn't just a memoir. It's a manifesto. Since publishing All Boys Aren't Blue and seeing the backlash to it, Johnson has watched students in Florida walk out of school. They've seen students show up to school board meetings and people all across the country talk about the book's impact. And it wasn't just queer people advocating for their book either, Johnson said. It was parents, teachers, librarians, and so many others who understood what it meant to learn about these experiences. I think that's really what the book does, is that it activates you to be better. It activates you to have to look in the mirror at, one, the self-reflection of, have you ever challenged your own identity? Have you ever thought about your own identity? But two, the role that you 
may have played in discriminating against somebody else, uh, the role that indoctrination may have played in how you navigate this world versus if you're actually navigating this world from a place of your own thoughts and your own feelings um, about other people. And I think that was what the book started to do. It, I watched it. I still watch it change minds and I still watch it empower people. I still watch it encourage people. And ultimately, I have watched the book save people because I have those emails where people literally say your book saved my life. Uh, and I think that's the power behind saying it was a manifesto and a call to action uh, because it was something that I didn't get to have when I was growing up. And so now this is a gift that I've put into the world that can't be denied and that so many will get to have for the future. It is tough to write through your trauma. There are a lot of things that you sometimes think you may have gotten past and you still haven't gotten past. You just buried it. And then those things start to rise to the surface and you're confronted with the fact that you actually have to deal with them now. Uh, but you're not just dealing with them now for yourself. You're dealing with them now for the entire public to see. Um, it puts all your scars out there to the public. It puts all your vulnerabilities out there to the public. You're extremely transparent with the world. And so that can be a very scary place uh, when for years you haven't even been able to be vulnerable or transparent with yourself. And so uh, it was tough at times to write some of those sections, but I knew that those sections were necessary because I knew who needed to hear it. I knew that my fear of people knowing certain things about me that even maybe my embarrassment that or shame or some of those things that I dealt with uh, that you, you try to keep away from people. I knew that keeping them away from people may have been the necessary piece that some team actually needed to read. And so I had to kind of weigh those two things and, and make the decision to say, like, whatever I'm feeling in this moment, like, I would rather deal with what, I, what I'm feeling in this moment versus finding out that I kept something out of the book that could have saved someone's life because of what I was feeling in the moment. And so that was always how I was able to push through any times I had to write about a struggle, any times I had to write about a trauma. It was thinking about the greater good and knowing that in healing myself, it healed others. And essentially, um, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to push through many of those things. Johnson first learned that their memoir was facing backlash in 2021 through Twitter when someone messaged them to say a candidate for school board in Kansas City was working to ban their book. Fast forward to November 2021 and eight counties have banned their memoir and the criminal complaint in Florida is filed. Johnson said that's when they knew it was really going to be a long, treacherous, and ugly road ahead of them. And they weren't wrong. Pushback to Johnson's book is still ongoing and has now gone all the way up to Congress. Just last month, Republican Senator John Kennedy used a Senate hearing on censorship and book bans to read from Johnson's book, and he chose one of the racier parts to read from. Let's take two books that have been much discussed. The first one is called All Boys Aren't Blue, and I will quote from it. I put some lube on and got him on his knees and I began to slide into him from behind. I pulled out of him and kissed him while he masturbated. He asked me to turn over while he slipped a condom on himself. This was my ass, and I was struggling to imagine someone inside me. He got on top and slowly inserted himself into me. It was the worst pain I think I have ever felt in my life. Eventually, I felt a mix of pleasure with the pain. Close quote. All boys aren't blue. You know, hearing it read 
it was interesting though, because I that was what I heard too. Like when I when I heard him read, I was like, okay, but I'm like practicing safer sex practices. Um, I'm talking about you know how this experience was potentially harmful, and I think what always pisses me off about when they read that particular section is that that section is talking about that you have the right to say no if you're in pain, or that you have the right to consent, or you have the right to consent and then also take away consent in the midst of um, engaging in sexual intercourse, which is really important to teens because teens don't know that. Teens think sometimes that you know when they're having their first sexual experiences that, well, because I already said yes, there's no point I can say no. Like once you take back consent, you have that power. But back then I didn't know that. I thought once you kind of say it, it's like you're you're kind of now in it because we're not taught about consent. We're not taught about agency. We're not taught about what sexual trauma is, uh, what rape culture is. Like we're not taught any of those things. And so that entire chapter, one, I was 20 years old when that happened. Two, it talks about consent agency um, and really, really helping teens to understand like that those first experiences can be scary and can be dangerous, especially if your only reference, which I always also say in a chapter for most teenagers who were like myself, because we have such poor sex education in this country, most of our references come from television and film, which is highly uh, dramatized. So it doesn't actually depict the reality of when you're going through those first experiences or it comes from pornography because that's the only real things that we have access to uh, when we're that age, especially if school systems aren't going to teach it and then parents are too afraid to teach it at home uh, because they don't like to have those, as they say, those heavy conversations that teens are already having with one another. But there's another part that hurts for Johnson, and it's the same thing so many who are against book bans have been pointing out too. The authors being targeted in these bans are telling stories that differ from the mainstream. They're books written by black and brown people, women, and LGBTQ plus authors. Yeah, I think that's the hardest part for me is like the realization that like this is not just about books. Like this is a coordinated attack at the eradication of certain groups of people. Um, they're starting with queer people and black queer people and black trans people. And you know, that is just, it's just obvious. And and trans people, like in general, like it's just obvious what they're doing, right? This is an erasure tactic. And it's like, well, if we can keep you from using restrooms and then we can keep you from getting certain jobs and then certain businesses don't have to render services to you and you also don't have the ability to read books about yourself and like when you start to add it all up it's like this is a full out coordinated attack at the existence of us being able to even navigate any space in society, right? Because eventually what it'll boil down to is we no longer have the right to get married and then eventually LGBTQ people will no longer have the right to vote. Like it, 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 it only continues down that path. And I think what happened in Florida is a good case of why it only harms, especially black community and um, other communities that are non-white, and you don't protect LGBTQ people because the Don't Say Gay bill came out. You had uh, all of these anti-LGBTQ laws, anti-trans laws coming out in Florida, and a lot of people remained silent because they allowed their homophobia and transphobia to, to take over the fact that we are all still part of non-white or non-privileged groups. And then they came for Black history. And it was like, well, we all knew that was what was next. Like we knew they were going to remove Black history next because the ultimate goal is to not have a history that is taught that is non-white 
or non-heterosexual, but they had to use us in many ways as the litmus test of how far they could go before they then went back to the drawing board and started with a new group. And so now it's like, but that's where your homophobia and transphobia gets you because eventually they're going to come after you next. So it, it makes no sense to oppress other groups when you're in an oppressed group, because at the end of the day, there are more of us as the oppressed groups than there are those in privilege, but they use our oppressions against each other at times so that you end up doing the bidding for them until they can get you next. Johnson isn't alone in his feelings either. Tiffany D. Jackson, author of Monday's Not Coming, struggled at first when she heard her book had been banned. Monday's Not Coming tells the story of a young Black girl in our nation's capital who goes missing and only her best friend notices. I'm very much a true crime writer. All of my books are loosely inspired by real cases. And uh, this book is actually inspired by two real cases, one that happened in Washington, D.C., um, another one that happened in Detroit, Michigan. In both situations, it was kids who were missing and had been missing for, um, one was for three or four months, and the other one was up to two years, um, but nothing was reported on them. And I remember being a young girl and seeing like, you know, young girls being like kidnapped in my Brooklyn neighborhood and not not seeing any coverage about that. And so it always like it always stuck with me, honestly, about the idea of when girls go missing, girls who look like me, you know, they're not all over the news. And I really wanted to touch upon that and take it from an angle of a best friend story and like what you would do to like anything to do to find your best friend who happens to be missing. The story is based on the epidemic of missing Black girls in this country. In 2019, the NAACP reported that more than 64,000 Black women were missing across the United States, which meant that even though Black Americans make up only about 13% of the population, they account for 34% of missing people. So Jackson took these stats and created her story. It begins, this is the story of how my best friend disappeared, how nobody noticed she was gone except me, and how nobody cared until they found her one year later. You wouldn't think something like this could happen in Washington, D.C., a city full of the most powerful people in the world. No one could imagine this happening in the president's backyard. That's the way us folks in Southeast felt, too. If they say we live in the shadow of the nation's capital, then how could one missing girl flip it inside out? I was actually still in D.C. the time that this was happening. Um, I went to Howard University. I worked in National Geographic at the time. And I remember when this uh, this case is specifically called the Benita Jacks case, uh, when this specifically hit the news um, and it went, world, you know, nationwide. All I kept on thinking is like, well, you have all these people. There are so many ways that these kids slip through the cracks, whether it be through the school board, whether it be through teachers, mayor, uh, like it just everybody. And I couldn't understand how we are in the city with so many important people from diplomats to the president that we aren't getting this type of coverage. We aren't getting this type of attention. And it still continues. Even uh, back in 2017, um, there were, I think, what, 50 girls who went missing within a two-month span. And the only reason why they were it was even noticed was that they started to post their missing persons posters on Twitter. And people were like, wait a minute, this is a lot of girls. Like, why aren't you actually like sounding like a larger alarm here? And it was just, it's devastating to see because a lot of those girls were, you know, 15, 16, 17. And 
And unfortunately, a lot of times when girls those age ages, specifically black girls, those ages go missing, um, typically they don't get that 48 hour window. There's no Amber Alert that's called. Typically they are classified as runaways first and foremost. And then when they're finally like, okay, maybe they're not runaways. Like you miss that 40, that critical 48 hour window to actually find them. But those type of like parameters aren't typically, you know, put on, you know, when white counterparts are go missing. And so I really wanted to call attention to that. I really wanted to like shout like, you know, hey, this something's up here. Um, but I specifically, you know, wanted to talk to kids about this because I think that like, you know, when you sometimes when you speak to adults, <laughs> there's a lot of cotton in their ears and they're not willing to listen and say like, hey, something is wrong here. But when you start to talk to kids, you know, kids are very like they're they're a fresh palate. You know, they actually are watching and listening and they're saying, hey, that isn't right. Especially I go to, you know, I do school visits all across the country. And whenever I ask and talk about this book, I ask, when's the last time you got an Amber Alert on your cell phone for a missing Black girl? Nine times out of 10, they don't remember or they've never seen it. And when I ask them to look in their database of their specific state, how many Black kids are missing, they're stunned by the numbers. And it's like, well, wait, why aren't adults doing anything? And I'm always like, aha. It's not always easy writing these types of story, Jackson says, but they do help shine a light on issues we need to know. They're informative and they spark conversations that might not have happened otherwise. But two years ago, Jackson was shocked to learn that Monday's Not Coming was being challenged. It actually first started back in uh, 2021, in the spring of 2021. You know, we were still very thick in the pandemic um, and still sort of uh, kind of getting our grounding in terms of what this new world was going to look like. And I got uh, hurt. I heard rumblings of, you know, school board meetings of, you know, parents trying to ban specifically my book um, in a whole district in Virginia. And it was on the uh, Tucker Carlson show and, you know, all these things were happening. And I was like, oh, they may they must have the wrong book because I couldn't understand it was being banned for sexual content. And I was like, oh, I think they have you know, the wrong book. I think it, there's been a mistake. But then they were reading passages from it out of context. And I was like, oh, it's not a mistake. They just can't read. They don't have reading comprehension skills. And so I, I still kind of ignored it, hoping that it would go away, um, especially since I just felt like it wasn't worth my energy to sort of enter the chat <laughs> in a way. Uh, but then it started to spread and it became this game of telephone throughout the country. And I was like, wait, hold on a second. And I... I honestly got really emotional about it and I stopped speaking about it. Um, I know a lot of authors and I, and I say this all the time, a lot of authors are very active and very involved in trying to like fight the good fight um, and they're angry. I'm not angry about this. I'm actually very hurt. Like it's very hurtful to have people, uh, specifically parents come and label your book completely wrong and sort of like, label you as a person trying to, you know, be a deviant to children. It's a very hurtful thing to, you know, kind of go through. So I think that that's where I sort of been living in this space of I'm really hurt and I don't understand how people are not seeing what I'm seeing. <laughs> it's been an interesting experience since I least. I've actually questioned whether I wanted to have these type of conversations with people who are so adamant about banning these books, because how do you have a conversation with someone who is so, who's raised in hate? Like, why are we having these conversations with people who are raised in hate? Because they are not going to listen to facts. They're not going to listen to emotions. They're only listening to their own logic. 
magic. And it's like when two people talk like this, it's really hard to get through to them. But I also feel like it's important to have these conversations and have them out loud and have them publicly because other people are listening. Kids specifically are listening. They are watching all of this happen and they are recognizing the dishonesty in all of it as well, too. They're watching, you know, their parents and their friends' parents do this to their school district and be like, you know, hey, that's not right. So I think it is important still to actually have these conversations. Even if I feel like we're talking to brick walls, I do feel like it's important because other people, specifically kids, are watching and they can under, they can see the forest through the trees. Like they understand that, you know, this is not right. And also just because they're banning books specifically in schools doesn't mean that the kids can't access books any other way. And I think that that's what they're kind of missing as well too. And even though they're banning books and let's say they're banning books and kids are like 17, they'll be 18 and they'll have access to all the books. Like, I think there's this uh, this urban legend that kids stop reading at 18, that they don't read in college and they don't read like after college when in fact, actually they do. So it's they're going to catch up on all the things that you try to ban and then say like, well, why did you ban this? You are literally sparking a revolution of kids who are going to come after these same politicians and same, you know, kind of uh, flamethrowers as I call them. And I don't have to do anything. You are doing all the work for me. Many authors who have been banned share that. Though hurtful, they keep pushing forward with their writing because they know what's it like to not see themselves represented, their stories told, or their identity validated. For George, it meant not hearing or seeing Black queer stories. For Tiffany, it meant not seeing Black girls as the heroine. And neither want to see any student have to experience that isolation the same way they did. I think what keeps me going is actually kids. Like, and that's one of the bigger reasons why I still continue to do school visits and I still continue to engage uh, with my readers because I'm writing for them, not writing for, you know, adults. Um, and I think talking to kids and, you know, every school visit, I find somebody who identifies himself completely in one of my books, uh, whether it's my book Grown or whether it's uh, Monday's Not Coming. They all identify themselves. And I think it's super important for kids or for this next generation to see themselves on the page uh, and to see themselves in an active role on the page. Like not just like a side character, but also seeing them, you know, in whether it be a best friend relationship or whether it be, you know, being the star or being, you know, like uh, the love interest, like the full-fledged love interest in the story. I think it's incredibly important because we didn't have that um, when we were younger, uh, specifically me. I didn't see myself in a lot of stories. I didn't see myself in horror novels. I didn't see myself in thrillers or mystery novels. I had to kind of insert myself into, you know, these characters and pretend that they were Black versus they were always white. Um, and I think I wanted that more than anything. I wanted to see myself. I wanted to like experience, you know, a book that like talks about being a city kid because uh, a lot of the books I was reading, it was mostly suburban kids. And I had no kind of concept of that as a younger uh, girl. So interacting with kids have really like seriously helped me <laughs> uh, make sure that I continue this work because it's, it's, it's vital. It's vital for us to keep on writing like this. And um, I could say for myself and all my other like, you know, counterparts out there who are also being banned, uh, we all just have like, you know, it's this unsaid like kind of mission uh, that we are all like going towards. And I think we're just not truly engaging with the noise. 
But they also have advice for young and new writers too. Don't be afraid to share your story. My advice is, you know, I guess in spite of all of the things, if you just look at who we've been as a people, historically, you know, our silence has never saved us. And so, you know, I think sometimes we think being silent, being complacent, assimilating is a way to to save us. And and, and again, we're, we're survivalists because, you know, they don't want us to be here, but I would rather use my voice uh, than to lose my voice. And so I every day wake up and choose to continue to use my voice and encourage others to continue to use their voice uh, because they want to be your voice. They want to dictate how you have to live and how you have to move and how you have to talk and walk and dress and hair and all of the things. And the older I'm getting, the more comfortable I'm getting with the fact that I dictate those things for me. And. I want others, when they see me, they see my story, they see my Instagram and how I dress and the fashions and the things, to know that I was scared too at one point to go outside of myself because of the powers and the voices from the noise from the outside. But the trusting in my own voice is what got me here. And that the trusting in their voice is what will get them to where they need to be. And and let me add to that, the storytellers uh, in Hollywood, um, the storytellers who are telling stories that more people will see than will ever read anything I write, right? And the reality is that the March for Freedom and the the blood that has been shed uh, was shed over what story of who we are are we willing to embrace? Um, Martin Luther King didn't give up, you know, his life uh, to be edited into, you know, just this um, figure that doesn't tell the truth about this country as part of the imperative for transforming it. All of us carried that responsibility. All of us who have benefited from the courage of Uh, of all all too many people who put it all on the line and some who did not walk away with their lives. They did so because they knew that the only way we were going to be able to make this country and make the human condition all that it can and should be is by refusing to back down, refusing uh, to be silenced. We didn't come this far to let a handful of people, they're not even the majority, tell us that we cannot speak our truth and tell our stories. So this is, you know, the the same kind of politic that happened before. Um, Those who insisted on telling the truth were either suppressed, killed, their tongues were cut off. We can't be that generation um, that refused to take the baton and the risk of the baton and play it forward. So, you know, I'm writing my memoir now. I know as I'm saying some of these things, some of the people are going to say, aha, this is what cannot be said. And I've got to count on masses of others saying, not only can it be said, it must be said. I'm Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill. And from all of us at The Hill, thanks for listening to this episode of The Switch Up. We'll have more episodes delving into the intersection of race and politics soon. So be sure to follow The Hill at T-H-E- H-I-L-L on all social media for future updates, including episode drops and articles. You can also watch the full interviews with all of our guests on YouTube. The Switch Up was created and written by me. Script editing for this episode was done by Steph Thomas. Audio production by Christian Carter. Special thanks to Casey Brady.